What up, everybody? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. This is the Leslie Greif episode. Now, many of us in the Unscripted community know Leslie Greif very well. Uh, I've always said that you can put him up on the Mount Rushmore. We know his company, Think Factory, which he built from the ground up and turned into a juggernaut. He sold it to ITV three years ago for a pretty decent chunk of change. They produce shows like Marriage Boot Camp Reality Stars, Gene Simmons Family Jewels, R&B Divas, not to mention some critically acclaimed miniseries, Hatfields and McCoys, Texas Rising. So I got to talk to Leslie about his team at Think Factory, what advice he might have for young storytellers trying to build a production company, and this whole life that he had before Think Factory, a career he developed as a writer, producer, director of feature films, and made-for-TV movies and television shows, including creating Walker, Texas Ranger. Yes, yes. Leslie Greif, who we all know so well from the unscripted world, created Walker, Texas Ranger. So I was going to have to talk to him about that. Amazing stories and experiences to share with me. In the first 30 minutes of this episode, I think he dropped anecdotal stories about either meeting or working with Elvis, Dean Martin, Rob Reiner, Harvey Weinstein, and a Michael Jackson story that I think you'll be talking about at all your drinks and lunches. So here it is, episode number three with Leslie Greif. Hope you enjoy it. All right, so you just got off the road for how long were you gone? I've been on the road for about five months. I was in Memphis uh, prepping this new series called Million Dollar Quartet. It's CMT's first launch into Big Scripted. And uh, we were there with Roland Joffe directing based on the Broadway winning show Million Dollar Quartet. And it's basically about the birth of rock and roll. Sam Phillips, who formed Sun Records, discovered a few guys – like Ike Turner, B.B. King, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, <laughs> Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Amazing. So you went out and got the rights to the stage show? Correct. And you have a knack for this. You have a knack for finding a perfect fastball series to launch a network's scripted business. Because this is exactly what you did with Hatfields and McCoys. It's what I did with Hatfields. Then we built on it with Texas Rising the following year. And I just got approached by... Um, TLC to do the same thing. I can't. I can't really tell you what it what it is yet. We haven't officially announced it, but we got a very big property. This is a little different from Hatfields and McCoys because I saw on IMDb that you wrote, you personally wrote the first two episodes of this CMT series. Is that correct? Yes, I, I wrote the. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. I was like the initial writer with Colin Escott, who worked on the Broadway show, but I wrote Texas Rising. I wrote the ten hours right. of Texas Rising. It's kind of like. When you're at this point in my life, you got to do whatever you got to do to get it made. So it's not that I really like writing. Hopefully, I don't have to write that much anymore. But you kind of do what you need to do to get it done. But how do you, running a giant production company with multiple, if not dozens, of productions running through this office at any given point, have the time to actually sit down and put pen to paper and write episodes? Well, God bless you that you still think I'm old enough to do pen to paper because that is (laughs) – I don't use the computer. I didn't, I didn't say Quill. Said, I didn't say Quill, Leslie. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know how – sometimes I just dictate and have the guy write the thing for me. But um, the key is building an infrastructure with 
really great people. Adam Reed, who's our president, and Joanne Rubino, uh, and Adam Freeman, our creative director, these three are my ten poles. I couldn't do what I do or have the freedom to do what I kind of do but going off into the world and coming up with these crazy ideas if I didn't have those three individuals as the staple to the company. They know how to run it, administrate it, and we've worked so well together for so long that we trust one another and we know how to make best use of one another. And I, I've always believed in the philosophy, if two people do the same thing, then one thing's redundant. Right. So you need to find people with complementary skills that offset what your strengths and weaknesses are. And I think those three guys are, are a big are, – I'm just lucky to have them because they make up for all my deficiencies <laughs> and keep us going. Well, it's a skill in itself to find the right team and to groom them, but it seems like it's a bigger skill to keep them because you've had the Adams with you. I don't know about Joanne, but you've had the Adams with you for a long time. Oh, yes. Um, Joanne's been with me almost 15 years. Wow. And the two Adams have been with me, I'm, I'm going to guess, almost 12 years now. That's not the case, Leslie, at a lot of other places. You know that they get their start, they get a couple EP credits, then they become hot free agents. Well, I, I, I think – what we try to do at Think Factory, because we've had so many people come through the door and stay with us, is you want to be able to give people a chance to blossom. Yeah. I, don't, I want people to be able to rise to the level of their own ability. So I don't set a boundary for anyone and give them a comfort zone. Obviously, everyone wants to make money, right. and you want to make sure you, you, you find equitable financial packages. And then if you create a synergy and a reputation, what I try to do is have people take pride in that. Yeah. And I give Adam and Joanne and Adam, we call me Adams, the the pride I hope to imbue that in everyone here that Think Factory is not Leslie Grimes' company. It's our company. Of course, the Adams could go anywhere. Joanne could go anywhere. But do they want to start a company? Do they want to start all over? Uh, do they want to sit here and say, i got to break in a whole new system? Or is this their company? Right. This is a company they can inherit. And I hope as we stay with ITV, who's been very supportive of us, and leave us alone to basically we're a standalone, partially owned company where right. we bring in the bottom line and they're, 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 they're there to support us, but they leave us alone. Well, we're going to get into your advice for young entrepreneurs and people trying to start companies a little later on, but I want to go back to the beginning. I want to first tell you my story of when I first heard of Leslie Greif by reputation, okay? Oh, okay. So this is... I think circa early 2010, I'm running development for Ben. This is early stages of Electus. And we get Mob Wives uh, brought to us by the Weinstein Company, and we partner with them on it. We take it out. We have two cable networks bidding straight to series based on the sizzle tape. And it's Lifetime, and it's VH1. I don't think you know where this is going, do you? No, but I know the story. Okay, so. okay. So we are in a bidding war between VH1 and Lifetime, and Nancy Dubuque, I vividly remember, gets on the phone with Ben. And at that time, neither the Weinstein Company nor Electus in the early stages had the capability to run productions in-house yet. So whatever network we sold to was going to place us with a third-party production company to run production and run the show. So at Lifetime, Nancy Dubuque gets on the phone with Ben and says, here's the deal. We're making this offer straight to series, and if you do it with us, you're going to have to run this through Leslie Greif and Think Factory <laughs> because Leslie – knows how to talk to these kind of people. <laughs> Le okay. Leslie knows how to work with these types of people. And I won't take it further than that, but why did Nancy Dubuque think you 
would be a perfect fit to run a show somewhat tied to people that grew up in the mob? Well, I don't know if it's about the mob, but she knows having done Gene Simmons Family Jewels right. and dealt with all the crazy people and growing up in New York and I had taken her to Rayo's and we had some fun. The, 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 here's the side oh, the, part. The New York connection. The sure. New York connection. Here's, here's the B story. <laughs> I get a call from Ben. No idea. Out of the blue, Ben Silverman's calling me. Let's have lunch. I'm thinking, this is unusual. Ben doesn't call me for lunch. So I said, okay, I'm in New York. I'll go have lunch. We're having a nice lunch. And then Harvey Weinstein falls by. <laughs> now, I've met Harvey at the time a hundred times, and he has no idea who I am. Hello, how are you? No idea who I am. He co- Leslie, how are you? It's so good to see you. And he's charming and schmoozing, and they're like, uh, this is this is nice, but it's strange. They don't talk about anything. And he says, hey, we're going over to see Nancy a little bit later today. And I, you want to come? We'll go hang out. And I figured it's always fun to go see Nancy. So I go. And I said, great, I'll go with you. We'll go hang out and wait, we'll wait, surprise hold on, her. Hold on. So Ben Silverman and Weinstein basically capture you into this lunch scenario. Correct. And then somehow get you to just drift off to Nancy on a, for a, on a random on on a her- random meeting with Nancy Dubuque, one of the most powerful people in this business. We're just going to stop by and swing by the office and That's say right. what's up. Right. right. So I figured, great, I'll go see Nancy. I mean, we go back all the way, and it's fun. I'm in New York for a few days. We walk in, and then all of a sudden, in come the mob wives. Now, they look familiar to me, but I don't know who they are. And then I realized two weeks ago, I closed Rayo's with two of the mob wives. And just we're having dinner. I'm with Sonny Grosso. Sonny, did, they made the sure. French connection about him. Sure. And we're all sitting and we're drinking. They come over to the table. I have no idea who these women are. And they, weren't you? And I'm like, weren't you in that kind now, of... Wait, when you say closed Rayo's, you mean you closed... Yeah, 4 o'clock in the morning, yes. closed Rayo's. Didn't, right. cl- didn't close a deal with Rayo's. No, 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 no. We just closed Rayo's, like, finished up the night. <laughs> <laughs> the jukebox blaring, the, the limino cello flowing. So, hey, Strange, come on in. We're doing a show, Leslie. You might like to hear this. I go walking in. No sooner do I sit down, does Harvey Weinstein says, well, you see? And I'm, uh-huh, what do you mean? Ben says, you want Leslie Greif? We got Leslie Greif. Next thing I know, I'm in the middle of a pitch for mob wise. They made you the bargaining chip. <laughs> exactly. So now Nancy's going, well, you're here, of course, you know, being a producer that I am. Of course I'm in. Yes, the word is yes. I have no idea what I'm saying yes to. I don't know what the show is. But you, you go with it. The word to all you young listeners is always yes. So we went yes. So oh we went gosh. into the show, and it all started to work out. And I'm like, this is going to be great. I don't know. I got a little bit, I got a little anxious because I know the real world that they were going to tap into through just life experiences and some of the characters they were talking about. And I figured, well, this could be a bit of an interesting ride. One of them was Sam of the Bull's daughter. That's right. So as we turned out, uh, I'm ready to go. I'm in the wings. I had a phone call. No, I went to VH1. I went, really? (laughs) After all this. So that was my... So that's my side of the story. And it, God bless Ben. I and never Harvey. knew that side of the story. I never knew that side. It uh, it went to VH1, and because Left Right, the company was kind of the chosen vendor of VH1. Correct. It did very well for Banks Tarver, and I've always I've always sat back and thought, not that Think Factory didn't do very well otherwise, but how that show, which went multiple seasons, had two spinoffs, right? Three spinoffs, really. You had Big Ange. Miami Monkey and uh, Mob Wife Chicago. 
that did that did wonders for left rights business. It was great. So there, I was disappointed, of course, but they were a New York based company, and and oh, that's God. that's just the way, uh, is, as they say, the cookie crumbled. That is a great Hollywood story. Not not so different though when we went and pitched Mob Wives to E, and Ben can't make it. It's a last second thing, and Harvey's office calls me. And says, hey, we've lined up a 9.30 meeting with Lisa Berger at the time at E! to pitch Mob Wives. Um, ben can't be there. Can you join Harvey there? And I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. Super awkward because at the time, my now wife is Lisa Berger's assistant. Oh, that's so, funny. So I'm going to go pitch a show to my, my girlfriend's boss. <laughs> and I'm going to be in the room. And she knows. Lisa knows. You know, I'm, I'm the assistant's boyfriend. So I'm going to go pitch with Harvey Weinstein, Academy Award-winning oh. Harvey Weinstein. So that's already kind of awkward. But the thing going into the meeting for me was Harvey doesn't know my name. So oh my how God. are we going to go into a room together <laughs> right. and pitch where I know for certain Harvey does not know what my first name is? So we get in the room. We pop in the tape. Lisa starts asking a bunch of questions. I start riffing. Harvey starts riffing. It's going very well. And then at some point, Lisa just sits back and goes, so, wait, just so I understand, how did this come together? <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean? Me and Electus? And she goes, yeah. And Harvey goes, well, me and Ben have been wanting to work together on a project for a very long time. We found these women. We brought it to Ben because Ben's really the TV specialist. And, you know, I mostly do film. Um, so he and I and... And this is the moment because he's motioning to me sitting right, right. next to him on the couch. I, help me out yeah, here. He goes, so, so Ben, myself, and James here <laughs> got together and brought out, brought out the project. And he knew it. Somehow he pulled James out of <sighs> nowhere, pulled James. It could have easily been Johnny or Jeremy. <laughs> but that's why he's Harvey Weinstein. Exactly. When he, when he needs to come up in the clutch. I mean, he, he, he had a pickle last year. I'm at David Zaslov's Labor Day party, and it's the who's who, and I'm like, I am like, feel like I'm zealot. Why am I at this party? Do they check your bank account before you, you know, get in the door? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I just, I just came – I walked in. As I got out of the car, there's like Oprah Winfrey and Matt Lauer and Martha Stewart. So I kind of like just sidled up to them, figuring they won't stop me if I keep moving in. And Harvey comes up to me, and he, and he says, I got this production in, in, in Malaysia. Yeah, Marco, Marco Polo, Polo, which we did together at Lectus. Yeah, and he said to me, "We're having it's having some issues financially, and would you go down and see if you could help? You know, put a little tourniquet on some of the bleeding." And I said, "Harvey, I would, would love and respect. I don't do that. It's I, it's been years since I've been a mechanic on a production. I'm not really a for hire you know, guy. I'm not a for hire, and I don't really go down and line produce anymore. And it's just, but thank you for the. And he said, "No, I need you to go down there. Whatever it takes." And don't ask me how, but two weeks later, I'm landing in Singapore. down in Singapore. And uh, I'm crossing the border, going into Malaysia, going in to help Harvey on, on the project. And I, I'm like, it's like, I'm hell? here. What am I doing? So as it, it turned out, Harvey does, there's a reason Harvey's Harvey Weinstein. I, I give him nothing but accolades. This was a year ago. A year ago. And then we came back, and I had like, it was weird because I had like a week left. I had finished early and been successful for him. 
So I ended up, I, I don't know what to do because there was, MIP was coming. So I just decided, I, I jumped on a plane and I went to Bangkok for a few days, swung by. Closed Bangkok? I, I closed Bangkok, went to Istanbul, before the bar, left Istanbul. Closed work, Istanbul. Worked, worked my way to Monte Carlo, had an all-nighter in Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo's never been the same. And then ran into Harvey at MIP down in the south of France uh, at the Majestic Hotel. Did Think Factory get a credit on season two? Of no, no, we didn't want any credit. We were kind of like, we were stealth. It was off the books. We were stealth. <laughs> Got it. All right, so I want to go back. New York. You're a New York guy. No, I was born in Hollywood, California. Okay. I'm a, uh, everyone thinks I'm a New Yorker, but no, I'm a Valley boy. You grew up in the Valley? I grew up in the, the time of the Galleria. No way. Wait, where did, where exactly? Encino. I was an Encino boy. I live in Encino right now. My family, by the way, Valley family. My dad and uh, all of his brothers went to Crespi. Mom, I went to Crespi. You went to Crespi. I was the only Jew in Crespi at the time. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. I went to Campbell Hall, and that would, nobody in listening in America would know. But I was, but it was like the Episcopalian school, yes. the Catholic school, and then I ended up graduating from Taft before I went to USC. And did you go to film school? Uh, well, I went to communication school in those days. It was so I got my degree in communications, and I studied film classes. There was much. Back in the day, they were much more loose. You kind of covered all kinds of classes. I was working as a page at NBC full-time uh, for Bob Hope and Dean Martin, if anyone knows who they are anymore. And I worked on the Dean Martin roasts, and then I worked for Johnny Carson oh and my God. Uh, the Midnight Special. Those were the, the big shows that I was working on back in the day. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad, I'm, I'm, my dad, I'm proud to say, he was one of the pioneers of rock and roll, and he he kind of helped form and invent the, the business. And he was uh, a big music manager, and he helped bring the Beatles to America, and he was part of Jimmy Miller produced the Rolling Stones, oh and he discovered Barry White. And he had me on the road when I was 15 as a road manager for, I was actually 14, for the uh, Edwin Hawkins Singers. I had a big record called Oh Happy Day. So I was a little, little kid traveling around the road uh, holding primaries in the airport. Wait, so you were brought up in somewhat of an entertainment home. Your dad was constantly yes. mixing with musicians and performers. Yeah, my dad managed um, all kinds of Nelson Riddle and uh, Gordon McRae and uh, Elsa Lancaster, Anthony Quinn, and oh and he those were in the and then he discovered Jose Feliciano and the Christie Minstrels and then. Barry White and Bobby Womack and so the whole you, world. So did you just have stars in your eyes as, as a young kid? Did you know you wanted to be in entertainment well, early on? Well, it was interesting because I always loved show business and wanted to be in the movie business. And But as a kid, I didn't have any real talent for music. And seeing Dad as a manager, my dad was kind of a kooky, crazy guy. and But I couldn't be a manager. I tried for a little bit. And I just saw what it takes to have to handle other people and your life's dependent on it. But I knew I didn't have any musical talent, although I love music. So I figured I'd try to make my way into the movie business. And the the one thing he did for me was my dad was one of those you got to work. And it was I was working when I was 15, and I was working record promotion in the summers. Huh. I got to meet Elvis Presley one day. It's like 10 o'clock at night, and I'm that RCA calling the calling the, the midnight uh, uh, jocks with the three-hour time differences. I'm going walking out. Uh, Mr. Presley comes out and he's like, what, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, uh, son. And I was like, 
I, I was awestruck, and I was Mr. Presley. I was, no, I'm, I'm plugging away on the song, sir. He said, well, that's what you got to do, man. Keep it going. Keep it going. And it was like, it was a great experience. What era, what, what era of Elvis was this? Which Elvis is this? This was uh, Elvis when he was at the height, early 70s, just after 68 special. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This, is, this is like Blue Hawaii Elvis. Yeah. This isn't Fat Elvis. No, no. no. Remember, there was only heavy Elvis. He only held the Elvis for like four years. Right. Everything else, this was Elvis. He was, he was the king. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's amazing. So you're pushing records. You're trying to get the word out there on, on these clients. Did your dad land you the page job at NBC? He did. Because, by the way, that page job, people don't understand how hard it is to get into that page program. That really was like a master's That's right. at an entry level. That was, that was the one thing my, 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 my pop did for me. He pulled one string, and Dave Tebbett, who was the head of talent at NBC, and in those days the vice president of talent was like, God, he handled everybody. And it was the heyday. It was Dean Martin and Michael Landon. It was all the big shows. And I was the youngest page at NBC uh, because of I, he helped me out. And there was a one, one day, it was a uh, holiday. I, I'll, it's a long story, but I'll make it very short. Um, I got the short end where I had to do the parking lot duty okay. on Thanksgiving weekend. And nobody was there. And it's a Sunday. And I got called last minute because Bob Hope wanted to do a monologue. Bob Hope said... Um, wanted to do a monologue just... Well, no, because he did these big Christmas specials back right. in the day. He just wanted to record and one? And he decided, I'm doing it today. So there was no audience. He flips out because he just, just assumed there would be an audience there, even though it was last minute. My boss, who, it's funny, in hindsight, was 25, 26. I'm thinking he's an old guy. But he was, like, explaining why you can't have an audience. I said, I'll get you an audience. I didn't know any better. I had a broken down beater. It's old red Maverick with the hand pump windows. And I start driving around the valley for two hours. And I'm going to meet Bob Hope, meet Bob Hope. I'm going into grocery stores. I'm going to Universal Studio, gas stations, street corners. I come back. There's seven, 800 people there. It's chaos. And there's no pages because they didn't expect anyone. My boss is ready to fire me. He's screaming me. He's screaming at me and the, before I know it, I'm thinking, Ugh, I'm fired. I am so fired. I didn't realize I overstepped my bounds. And so while I'm getting called to the carpet, Bob Hope's producer, Ani Morrow, says that Mr. Hope wants to see you, and now I'm, I'm embarrassed. Dave Tebbett's going to hear about this. And he just said, did you do this? I go, yes, sir. He said, that's the kind of guy I want. And he promoted me to the head page of, of his show, which in those days was like the highest – on it. You could. Bob Hope was the number one. Right. And then it was Dean Martin. And then when Dean Martin heard about it, he said, who's the kid? I became the kid. And he, and he, and he then stole me. And then I started to work <laughs> for Bob Hope and Dean Martin. And I worked in all those early roasts. And I became the kid. And everybody was like irritated. All my other competitor aid page guys were like, oh, you're Sammy Glick. And I didn't really mean to do what I did, but I was, which gave me the philosophy, I was of the, you got a problem, just solve it. Right. So back then, as a page working for Bob or for Dean, you're... Mr. Hope. Mr. Hope and Mr. Martin? Correct. You're basically doing whatever they need whenever, right? Yes. In those days, we would have to wear white gloves. We had suit and tie, shoe shine polish. You had inspection every day. Your fingernails had to be clean. You had to be primped. You had to be pressed. I mean, if you weren't, you get written up. Short haircut? Oh, yeah. Short haircut. No smoking. I didn't smoke, but... You had, to, you had to look the uniform, and they had a, a rule. You answer the phone on the first ring. On the second ring, you explain why you didn't answer it on the first ring. 
by the third ring, you're off the phone, which is which was the key position. And I got to meet all. I, I tell one story. Tom Beers loves to hear. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed by it, but it's a fun story. Mr. Martin says to me, "Pally, uh, why you call me uh, a Mr. Martin?" I go, "Mr. Martin, it's it's okay." And I'm going to carry his golf clubs out. It's, Three hours after work, I was off the clock. But my own kind of personal code was I wouldn't leave until my right. star was gone. And he was getting ready, and he was just having drinks with his pals. Got it. And we had wrapped. The show had probably wrapped around 8.30. And it's now like 10, 30, 11. And he was telling me to go home. I said, oh, Mr. Martin, I'm happy I'll grab your clubs. He said, well, you got to call me Dino. And I go, Mr. Martin. <laughs> I said, I can't call you Dino. And I said, but um, I do love working for you. He said, Pally, you're making me feel like my, my dad. If you don't call me, if you don't call me Dino, it's <laughs> I'm gonna have to bring someone else in. I said, please don't do that, sir. And he says, Jimmy, will you tell the kid to call me Dino? And Jimmy, Dean, he can't call you. You're, you're you're his boss. There's no way. There's a protocol here. It's not right. He doesn't work for me. He can call me Jimmy. I turn around and go, Mr. Stewart, I can't call you Jimmy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. And I, but that was the way those guys were. They were just great, fun guys. It's a great learning, great learning curve for me. Okay, I could I could go an hour just on the NBC sure. stories, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna move on a little bit. So, from the Page program, what was the first real gig that got you learning more about the producing side of television? Or, I mean, as a writer director yourself, what was that first gig that kind of put you on that path to learn under somebody? Well, it became uh, uh, in those days. I, you tried a lot of things. Yeah. I was I was doing whatever it took. I was a sweat hog on Welcome Back, Cotter. And then I'm trying to maybe manage. I'm trying to work with my father. I don't like that. I'm trying to put deals together. And I go, and I would say, like, the first big fun break, because I'd done little things. I'd gone to Yugoslavia before it was the Czech Republic. There was this movie deal being made with these Russian financing on soft dollars, and I had gotten some American dollars, and I'm flying over there in the winter trying to put a movie deal together, which I, I did put together. It was made with Robert Vaughn coming from Man, of, Man From Uncle. So I'm hustling, putting all these two-bit deals together. And then um, I, the big break came was I went over to um, uh, the MIT Festival. Okay. John Feltheimer, sure. who runs Lionsgate, right. was the Felt, and he was there with Harry Sloan, and he had just gone over to New World. Okay. And I had started the show with Softball League. Now, that's how I started to meet everybody. And I, Genius. I, I created the Softball League. and did we, you, Wait, did you create this specifically to help you yes. get to know everybody in town? Yes. I didn't know anyone. Was, originally, we started with six teams. It was Motown, William Morris, ICM, the Jacksons. I was on the Jackson 5 team. And uh, and then the independence, which we jumped over, which was Harry Sloan. It was Sloan and Cuppin. Wait, hold on a second. You, you just glossed over something kind of huh. big there. You're on the Jackson 5 softball team? Yeah, I was part of the Jacksons. And, and what, what, what do you mean you were part of the well, Did you place yourself on that team or did you? No, no, no. We, I, I knew all the guys from just being around and... And so I grew up with from the, your dad's side of the business. You right know. through Barry White, and over the years I met the the Jacksons, and we started the team. So did I Michael was, play? Uh, no, Michael would hang out on the side, and uh, we Michael's had, playing with a monkey on the side <laughs> in, the, in the dugout. He was <laughs> Michael was uh, he was great, and he and Janet were young in those days, so they would right. just come and cheer us on. Oh my gosh! And we would I, we we would come running around. Michael was always in the music. I my first the first time I ever heard of Sony Walkman. Michael had given it to me. He had come back from Tokyo. We were at Tito's house, and he showed up, 
and said, listen to this. This is like amazing. I, I didn't really know what it was and no one knew what it was because it was a prototype right. a year before it came out. Right. You put it on and I mean, it was amazing. It was like, it's just something. The first but time it, you ever saw Walkman, it was handed to you by Michael Jackson. Yeah. You just but, discovered it overseas before anybody in America had it. Yes. That was my, that's my one. My that's life. better than my first Walkman yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. Right, so you start the softball league. And we ended up, we started with six teams. We ended up going to 44 teams. We had every major company, William Morris, Paramount, Warners. We had every major star at the time from Tony Danza to... Mark Harbin, Billy Crystal, Rob Reiner. We had all the presidents of all the studios. I bet you back then, kind of like what the all-star game used to be in Major League Baseball in the Pete Rose era, I bet you people actually played hard back then. They played really hard. Oh, we had everybody. Magic Johnson, Pete Rose came out. We had everybody in show business. And then I had made these deals with all the little restaurants in the area. We had like El Torito and Nathan's and TGIFs, and I got coupons. So then after the games, everybody would show up at the restaurants and have drinks, and that's how we all became friends. Les Moonves, Les was running the team, uh, and he ran the all-star game, Michael Keaton. I mean, we we had everybody. It was fun. Brandon was out there in the early years. Yeah, it was – everybody was there. And then on weekends, people would bring scripts and bring ideas. And and you you built a whole kind of coterie of friends. I, I was just in Cincinnati on this other movie that I'm finished wrapping on Michelet uh, for Lifetime. And Rob Reiner was there the day before. Or no, no, the same night. And I just missed him. And all of a sudden, uh, he's talking to the film commissioner. He says, Leslie Greif. He says, the commish. <laughs> because Rob had the Coney Island Whitefish. It was Chris Guest and Billy Crystal and Rob, and they had their team for years out there. So we had a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Eric Lonneville had the, the big director. I mean, it, we had a lot of fun. We ran the league for 20 years. It's, so, it's amazing to hear you reference this as a networking strategy because I've always said in Hollywood, if you can't get invited to the parties, throw your own party. And let them come to you. And that's precisely what you did that's by organizing did. this league. I don't know anyone. I just met people from being around. And, and, and it's how I paid the rent because I had no money. I was, I was hustling. And in those days, I charged a couple thousand dollars a team. We had 44 teams. Cost me a few grand. And I lived all, and we worked 16 weekends a year. And that supported me while I was out hustling, trying to make deals. I was living in a little busted out apartment in the Valley. Well, if you're thinking of next career, we could use you as the <laughs> NFL commissioner. Yeah, there you go. Right, so how did that segue into a so I'm, gig? So we're at, we're at Medem, and I'm listening to Felt and Harry, and they're talking about they have a chance to scoop Joan Collins. Now, Joan Collins was the biggest star on television in those days. She was doing a show called Dynasty. Dynasty, huge. And that was ABC. So Felt and Harry were talking about, uh, here's, we, we, we could steal her. We could steal her. Harvey wants her so badly. We'll get her for a miniseries. And miniseries were really just starting out. I mean, they, they were huge. They had Rich Man, Poor Man, and Roots. And Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove, Shogun. All those things were the, in the heyday. And I'm just listening. So in those days, I, I, I went in. They didn't have the security. Now everything's a security. Right. I would sleep on the chaise lounge at the hotel because I didn't have room for an apartment. And then I'd go to a buddy's place, shower in the morning, and eat at a hotel. And, and a few people always let me sign a meal on their room. So I'm out there just like <laughs> trying to put something together, anything together. And I hear this. I said, I'm going to get this. I want this one. 
This is this is gonna. I'm gonna get it. You're gonna go get Joan Collins. I'm gonna get Joan Collins. I'm gonna I get saw the this project. On your IMDb page That's right. That one of your earliest made-for-TV movies, right? It was, was a it, was a Joan Collins. It was the seven. It was a seven hours. One of the biggest miniseries of all time. By today's standards, we had something like 38, 40 million people watch it. So I land. I go to this broken-down discount bookstore. Where? In the Northern Valley. Okay. And I go looking, and I start at A. And I go to B to C to D, and finally I get up to S, and there's a book called Sins, Helene Jeannot, Raped by the Nazis to Become oh. the Biggest Fashion Designer in the World. See, I'm I thinking, thought where you were going was you heard they wanted Joan Collins, and you were just, I'm going to go get Joan Collins. But instead, you're like, I need a project. I'm just going to go look for great material. That's right. They had Joan. I'm a nobody. Right. They, they don't want me. The, 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 what's true to today, it's always the IP. It's right. always the project. Right. It's what do you have. So you just go to a bookstore so and go, walk in the aisles. That's right. And I buy this book. It's like a total <laughs> trash book. But all I'm thinking is Sins, Joan Collins, right. just the title. I call up the felt and I say, I said, John, I got it. What do you mean you got it? I said, Joan Collins' next project. What do you mean, Joan Collins? You're trying to find a project for Joan. What do you mean? I said, we're sitting around the car. He says, were you eavesdropping? I said, no, I was paying attention. And he starts laughing. I go, Sins. He calls Harry. Harry calls Harvey. And in like a phone tank, bing, 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 boom, in the tradition of a Harvey Weinstein today, it's Sins, Joan Collins, sold. No one even read the book. I didn't own the book. No one read I, the book, but no, yeah, but who had the rights to the book? You nobody had the rights to the book. You had I, no idea at that I, point I if you could deliver. I didn't even know how to find rights to a book in those right. days. But I figured if it's in a cheap discount bookstore, <laughs> it's got to be something I could get. In and, the North Valley. In the North Valley. So long story short. I, so you, I, didn't, you didn't train under somebody. You didn't have some mentor. You didn't grind at a production company for years and work your way up. You just went out, got the rights <laughs> to a book, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Got so the book to the right person, boom, and now you're a producer. I'm on my big CBS miniseries. You and- literally took commissioner <laughs> of a softball league <laughs> exactly. to a bookstore and sold the book, right. and now you're a producer on a Joan Collins miniseries that right. would go on to be very highly rated. That's right. And now you're in the business. I'm in the business. They gave me an office at New World. I'm like, I got an office, and it was, and that's how I, that's how I got launched. Unbelievable. So. You work your way up in the film and miniseries game for a while. And in I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. In 93, Walker, Texas Ranger premieres. You created this series. Yes. You wrote the pilot. You probably wrote multiple, multiple episodes. No, no, I didn't. Here, that's another fun story. I didn't write the episodes. I did the first partial season. Okay. So I get, because of John and Harry, uh, I had met through the all crazy John Schneider. John Schneider was a big uh, big TV star from Dukes of Hazard. Right. So I got friendly with him, came up with an idea to do a Texas Ranger show. Okay. For John. Take it into NBC, going with Jeff Sagansky, and pitch the show. They love it. John Schneider, Texas Ranger. It's like, it's perfect. Okay. John Schneider's a big star. They offered him 13 on the air, which is like huge. Huge. William Morris wanted 22. Take it or leave it, 22. NBC left it. I'm dead. I'm depressed. This is it's, your big series. Oh, this is it. You're going to create it. But at this point, have you written anything? Have you written one of your films yet? No. I mean, I've been doing little pictures and little dabblings here and there. So you go on to pitch NBC, like, yeah, I'm going to write it. 
and they're just saying, okay, fine. Well, yeah, but it wasn't they didn't it, have to see by, a by a John Schneider, and it wasn't so much it was creating it. And so I had the idea, and I figured even if we had to bring in a big writer, I didn't care. It was just about getting a deal. Okay, got it, got it. I would do whatever it takes to make a deal. Got Flexibility sure. was my name. Right. When I was a kid, it was called being Gumby. It was a, Gumby was this cartoon <laughs> clay character. So I was just Gumby, whatever it took. Okay. So it dies, and then um, a couple years go by, and I'm talking to a, a gentleman and I'm thinking, Chuck Norris should be on television. And he's not as big in the movies now because Steven Seagal and Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis. Leslie Snipes. They all started to come out. I'm thinking, right. let me put Chuck Norris on TV. That's the way to go. So I go, and I go to approach Chuck Norris, and I say, let's get Chuck. Well, once the wind goes out that I can get Chuck Norris, everyone's looking to kill me. Stephen Bochco, Stephen Cannell, Aaron Spelling—they're like, "Who's Leslie Kreider?" Wait, trying to kill you, meaning if Steel, anybody's going to get, get Chuck Norris, it's going to be them. It should be them, not it you. Should, yeah, okay. who am I? I'm a no. I'm just a bishki guy, husky. Did you just make a phone call to an agent? No, no. I knew, uh, I knew a manager, Mike Greenfield, who knew Chris Pierce, who knew Cannon. It was always one of. The, I know a guy who knows a guy who knew a guy to get the Chuck. To get to Chuck, and then I call a, a dear friend who's like a mentor to me in my life. Uh, uh, Al Ruddy, who okay. produced The Godfather, and he wow. kind of nurtured me. Along. And I say, Al, I need you. I say, Ruddy, uh, they're going to squash me like a bug. I need you exec producer, partner up with me. So then I can tell Chuck Norris, I've got the producer of The Godfather. Right. So. So smart. It worked. So I got my Godfather to, of the real Godfather to be the exec producer. And we went to CBS to produce the show. Anyway, at this point, you're approaching him specifically for this idea? No, just to get Chuck, to do anything with Chuck. Anything, so it's like, anything, a, it's like a blind development that's thing. That's right. Whatever go, Chuck wants to do. We're going to go meet with networks. Yes. Chuck could have wanted to do BJ and the Bear, which was right. the, the old show. I would have said yes, anything, Mr. Norris. Okay. I still grew up with Mr. Martin. Yes, Mr. Right, Norris. Right. So we go into CBS, and I had an idea of a show. There was a show years ago called... Have a Gun Will Travel with Richard Boone, and it was, a, it was kind of a bounty hunter for hire. And I thought, what do we do a show about Chuck Norris, which was, became years later the equalizer, okay. where when you're in trouble, you call Chuck, and he had a plane. Right. And he got on a plane, a and one, he would fly a one man, anywhere. A one-man A-team. He was a one-man A-team. That was the show. Right. And so then Jeff said, oh, I like that. Why don't we develop that? But also, I liked – a show when, you know, Chuck was like a Texas Ranger thing. And I'm thinking, Texas Ranger? I got a Texas Ranger. Great. So why don't we develop both projects? Oh, wow. So we'll develop both projects. Now, Walker was the name of the show with the plane. Okay. And uh, uh, Emmett was the, uh, there was, he was the guy, the Texas Ranger. Something happened. Long story short, Chuck always loved the name Walker. Okay. So he took it from the one show and put it on Walker, Texas Ranger. And, we ended up narrowing down on the Texas Ranger show, and the script wasn't what was written by a writer that they put on the show was was like a disaster, and they wouldn't give the writer even a second rewrite. They just wanted to pay him off. Now I'm worried because we had a guaranteed deal, so I called through my right. softball days and pal friend con connections, a writer who's become very big, Paul Haggis. Amazing. So I, so I called Paul. He won the Oscar for Crash. Right. And but Paul had been he he'd been working on thirty something. Right. So I call Paul. Paul, I need you, man. This is the one. I need you to work with me. He's like, I can only give you two weeks. I said, I'll share creative by whatever it takes. Got it. 
But can you so Paul comes in, does a magnificent job, writes the one hour pilot. We get set, and then uh, Jeff says, No, we gotta do it, it's a two hour. But Paul left. He went off to Europe to a movie. So then me and Al, then then that's when I came in, I took that script. Got it. And then blew it out into a two hour with Al and another writer, and then that's we, we go to launch the show. Canon goes bankrupt. CBS shuts the show down. I'm $65,000 in debt. Hadn't been paid a penny. We made three shows, and my wife is six months pregnant, and I am like nowhere. I'm in a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment, and it's like disaster. I mean, nothing. I didn't know what to do. Right. And it all was shut down, and then the show became a monster. Because they had, they had, they had, they had the three Based shows. Based on the three episodes they had. And it was such a monster. So who owns the show at this time? Well, it was Canon, but it was in bankruptcy. Canon goes bankruptcy. So then, so then every studio came at okay, me to it. buy it. So you're holding the rights now. We're holding it. But then CBS, because they had just changed the Finson law, which changed everything. I'd be a very wealthy man right now. And CBS came in and said, no, we're going to own it because right. we're allowed to now. Got and it. if we don't own it. We're going to bury it. Right. The network could own shows through their studio. Correct. This was the first time it happened. Right. So then I was going to stay on it, and I wanted to stay on it. And then Ruddy said to me, don't be a schnook. Leslie, well, you, you want to go and do this for 10 years? And I'm thinking, right. well, yeah, it's my show, my vision, my baby. He says, no, take the money, take less, build a career. Right. And I listened to him. And so the first show went off. The first seasons were mine. And then we get our credit, we launched the show, and then we went off and I was able to start to build my company. Okay, so I have to ask, as a fan, how come I haven't heard any rumors of a Walker Texas Ranger movie in the vein of what they're doing with Baywatch? They should. And right? I, I've talked to them. I'm not crazy, them. right? You're not crazy. Well, the, the sad thing is we did a, two, a Walker two-hour finale. It was a two-parter. We end with uh, Walker's wife laying dead on the or laying wounded on the steps, and then CBS killed movies of the week. We've never ended the show. I have begged them and said, "You got to have a Walker finale. It would be so huge." And Chuck's ready to go, and but now we don't own it anymore. It's all in the CBS world of whatever they own. And I'm telling you, CBS big ratings. Close it. Finish it out. Walker. If, the finale. If MacGruber can be a feature film, if Baywatch can be a feature film, I'm pretty sure if 21 Jump Street can be made into a feature film, I'm pretty sure. We go out Walker, Texas Walker, Ranger. Texas Ranger should be an action comedy rebooted as a feature film. Well, it could be a franchise. My favorite was. It I could love be the daughter <laughs> of Walker. Do you remember the uh, the show Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights? Talladega Nights, yeah. He named his kids Walker That's right. and <laughs> Texas Ranger. <laughs> It's pretty funny. All right, so you go on to work with the likes of Burt Reynolds, Rodney Dangerfield, yes. and some of your other films yes. that you worked yes. on. Yes, more crazy, fun people. But this is an unscripted podcast, so I should probably talk about a little bit of that. Yes. So in the early 2000s, you're doing shows like Taboo for Nat Geo, Intimate Portraits, I believe for Lifetime? Intimate Portraits was a big series franchise for Lifetime. That was Lifetime. And then Amy Biography and, and MSNBC. And then you... Just kick in a couple no, no, of great the, documentaries. The, like- ta- the Taboo was a game show. It, they're two, they took the title later. But the Taboo I did was based on the board game, which is like the second biggest oh, on board game. On your IMDb game. page, it links, it links to the Nat Geo show. Does taboo. it really? Yes. Oh, that's so too funny. your Taboo was the, was the, the game, game show. show. You know the board game when you play <laughs> Taboo? That was it. I did 65 <laughs> episodes. Oh, my gosh. And it was just – and what we got killed on that because before Spike TV – Right. 
it was called, I just, uh, TNN. TNN. So we did it for TNN. And just when we launched, they threw everything out right. to call Spike TV. Right. And then they decided they weren't going down that road. All right. So you have early documentaries you're doing for Lifetime. You're doing biography. You did a Steve McQueen documentary. You did a Brando documentary. And in 2006, Gene Simmons' Family Jewels premieres, correct? Yes. Who had the relationship with Gene? Was that just through your music background? Did he take multiple meetings and his agency just had to meet multiple companies and he decided to go with you? What was the birth of that? Well, Gene was probably one of the most wonderful people I know. I've had the pleasure of meeting him and going to his house. He is a gentleman he, of gentlemen. He's a gentleman. He's a close friend. And he's and I, I say not a Hollywood friend. He's a... He's a dear friend and a, and a wonderful partner. But it's a very strange story with Gene because I knew Gene back in the day when I was a young kid, the rock roll running around. Right. I was working with Lamont Dozier. He was dating Diana Ross. And I'm, I was hanging out, and we would go to these crazy parties. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm just a young kid. He's not going to know who I am. But we, we partied, and I'm partying with Gene Simmons, and I would hang out with Sherry Payne, who was in the Supremes. And we were doing all the crazy rock stuff down in, in the, back in the day. So, years later, I get a call out of the blue. I see Gene actually when he played the Super Bowl. I was at the Super Bowl. Okay. And I was going to go up to him and say hi, but he's not going to remember me. It's been like 10, 15 years. I hadn't seen him. So, I don't say anything to him. I get a call one day. Gene Simmons is on the phone. And I'm like, he's got to be a friend breaking my chops. <laughs> so, I pick up the phone and it's Gene. Hey, Leslie. But he says, hi, Leslie. Like, I just talked to him 10 minutes ago. Right. What are you doing? A, B, C, D. Yeah. He said, I need your help. Okay. Let's meet for lunch. He takes me to lunch. And Nancy and we, Dubuque's there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we go to the restaurant. Uh, we're down at the grill. And he asked me for some help on something. I'm actually mystified that he would remember me. And we had the most, we ended up having three hours laughing it up. And we just became friends. No way. So when I was out out hustling, trying to get the, you know, pay the rent. And I'm doing the A&E biographies and Bob DiPoteto had gone over to A&E. Right. And I said, well, listen, you know, I'm picking out everybody. I know Steven Seagal. And of course I know Tony Danza. And how about Gene Simmons and Kiss? And he and says, at, and at this point, just to back up your, your business in the unscripted world at this point is kind of project the project. Like you have a documentary here, documentary series here. Hadn't really blown up yet in the unscripted space. Correct? No, because the business was just shifting. Right. You, scripted was, was, was kind of on, was waning down. Right. And what had happened was there weren't all the, there wasn't the big birth of all the cable outlets for all the big programming. Right. So if you weren't what would be considered a network pedigree showrunner to get a series on the air, and if you weren't going to be owned by the network, there were only a few people that were banging out all those shows. And the celeb doc thing really hadn't happened yet. No, it hadn't happened. We, we were the first big one. The, the first show was, was the Osbournes. Osbournes. But that was like a pure almost verite show. You just, right. It was a freak show of watching Right. Just watching people wander and exist. And then you had like Nick and Jessica newlyweds. And then from there, really, it, it was right. family jewels. And, and we were the first, which you might want to, we were like a, a reality sitcom. We right. were the first reality sitcom where you took what you did. You're expecting Gene, who's a rock star, to be crazy. Shannon, who, former playmate, she's going to be crazy. And then the two kids uh, were going to be insane. And what turned out was... They were the square ones, and the kids were the kooky ones. Right. And we were able to create this kind of Ozzy and Harriet feel where by day you expect one thing, 
but in you know at night it was something different. So you were able to apply everything you knew as a storyteller from the scripted world right. to this format of a comedy doc series. That's not, right. not so different than what Tom Beers told me one time where he was a, a theater guy and had really studied the, the storytelling and the, the classic three-act narrative, three-act structure of, of plays. And he basically just applied that to Deadliest Catch. When he made that. He's exactly right. But that Tom's a dear friend, and we talk about it often. We come from a narrative structure. We come from the discipline. We're, we're, we, you know, I, I don't want to say we're well read, but we, we, we know our English literature <laughs> and our American literature, and we take the, the, the format or the three-act structure, even from great movies, and you need to tell a story. The successful shows in Unscripted are ones that can tell a story and take you through a drive. When they become very scattered and disjointed, it's hard to follow. And when you look at the classic shows or the big shows that have sustained all these years, they always fall into a dramatic narrative structure. So after Gene Simmons' Family Jewels launches, and it is a huge juggernaut, so now you probably find yourself in the incoming phone call business when it comes to unscripted shows. Well, you know, it's funny. I've never dealt that way, and even today – my biggest – I like the fact that you, you, you expressed the incoming phone call because my biggest complaint is no one knows how to dial a phone. And to this day, I still dial the phone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key to success. I've had so many executives, and I tell them, don't get out of the job. You're not used to it. Because once they leave that job, they don't realize the phone doesn't ring. Right. And the, the, first, the first I was talking to Van – uh, when he left MTV. Van Toffler. And Van and I were having drinks, I don't know, last year. And we're sitting there. He said, boy, it's just, you know, it's different. And I said, well, first thing I do is start dialing the phone. He said, you're right. Told Masucci, all my friends, you got to dial the phone. Right. Because everybody's looking for the next thing. And, and all the buyers of the buyers are getting deluged by a million people. Very rarely is someone going to pick up the phone and call you. So I never waited on the phone to ring. I just figured, just keep pounding away. Somebody will pick up at some point. Yeah, and your assistant just poked her head in, so I know you've probably got oh. something very important. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump through here and get, sure. get into some rapid-fire questions. Having done scripted and unscripted, explain to the listeners out there, as a producer, how different are they and what are the pluses and minuses of, of each? The great thing about unscripted business is it's an immediate business. It's a quick turnaround once you get an idea relative to scripted. It is. It can be a business that you can make a profit on in bulk and that you're able to economize your costs, be able to bring the product to the, to the marketplace relatively quickly, and tell interesting stories. And if you're able to get whatever the subject of the format is, once you've cracked that, then it, it's something that's easy to, to become a formula. And that's where your profit is as a businessman. Creatively, you can turn things around, but you're relying on, in some cases, a format or a personality to be able to take you through. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge of that business has been that we've glutted it and we've had so many derivatives. Yeah. The biggest complaints and observations is that it's, it's not capturing the big audiences now because people have seen it or they feel it's familiar and they use all the library music. So there's not a freshness. I think everything is in cycles. Scripted is blown up, and people are binge-watching. Well, when Unscripted first came in, they were tired of formulaic procedural television. 
where you're saying, how many times can I see the same show? There's nothing interesting. Right. We want something different, a different world. Unscripted came in and opened up reality, which is world and culture and people and personalities and attitudes that America had never seen before. And you were intrigued by it. You were sucked in by it. Well, then as that kind of went through the 10 years of being glutted and I've seen everything, well, then the reemergence of scripted is they had to reinvent itself. So they didn't go into a typical procedural. They came in with these shows that became serialized or that went into weird walks of life, whether it's a Walking Dead or Breaking Bad. Or Nip Tuck back in the day. Or Nip Tug or – but but people started saying, well, we want to find unusual ways of telling stories, and we want to find um, characters and storylines that are so non-clean, right. that are so non-traditional and formulaic that when you get a company like uh, FX broke out with The Shield, all of a sudden people say, wait a minute, there's a whole way of storytelling. So now the audience says, well, I'm bored with watching the crazy guys on some river or some celebrity burnout, because I've seen that. Now let me go on a new adventure, and now they're jumping into these scripted journeys where they can now have their imaginations told again, and they can see the world. So everything's in a cycle. The challenge in scripted is it's very expensive. It's complicated to be able to mount. You need to have a lot more of a skill set, and it's a longer road to profitability. Because to do the first season... You don't really make money. You might make a salary. But the success is going the five seasons where you build an asset. Well, that's, that, that's the thing. I don't think most people on the outside looking in understand the economics of producing for unscripted and producing for scripted. We were on this panel at Real Screen last time. I've always equated – tell me what you think of this analogy. I've always equated producing on both sides with – kind of equated to roulette in Vegas. Producing for reality is like betting on red or black, Right. And producing scripted as a non-writing producer is like hitting a number. That's correct. In roulette. Because you're going to need 36 scripts for one of them to really hit and maybe give you a chance at syndication, which as a non-writing producer is really your only chance of making real money. Because otherwise, you just make a 30 to 40K fee per episode depending on where you sell it. Correct. And and there's no more really syndication. There is no more syndication market. And now the networks want to own everything. In some cases, people talk about Netflix, they give you a flat fee and a buyout. Right. So all your success on that show is being locked to the life of a show. Right. So hopefully they're going to produce a lot, and that becomes your fee, whether it's passive or active. Right. So everyone on the outside looking in is like, oh, I want to produce a Walking Dead. I want to produce a Mad Men. I want to produce a, a Homeland. And what you don't understand is you can go sell a Homeland today to Showtime and get a first season ordered. You're probably going to make 28000 maybe an episode, and that's it. And that budget is maybe a $2.5 million an episode series. Right, and they're, they're incurring a deficit. Right, but an unscripted, you can sell 10 episodes to Lifetime for a $350,000 know, an episode show, and you're making 30-something K as the physical production company Correct. every episode, not counting what you make on your margins. So you're really maybe making 60 k an episode on a Lifetime series. Right. And it will get far less critical appeal, but as a business – you're making way more money per episode doing a lifetime $350,000 an episode as opposed to a Showtime $2.5 million series. Correct. Also, in the reality world, you're going to get a faster turnaround. You get a right. faster, yes, a, fa- a faster from start to on the air. Right. And a faster you're picked up when you're not. And you're not relying on a writer. 
Correct. It, it's a producer's medium in That's unscripted, right. which most people don't understand. That's correct. You're only as good as your writer, and they really only want to hear from the producer for about five minutes in that pitch meeting. That's right. The other 95% of that, of that pitch is all about the writer. So I want you to think now, if you're Leslie Greif, if you're a 30-year-old today in 2016 and you have to start a production company, how different is your business model now, knowing what you know and knowing where the business has gone and where it's going? If you had to start a company today, what would be your philosophy or your strategy for success? Well, I've always, I've always tried to find what is not on the air and find a way to, to put it back on the air. So when I did Walker, mm. the one-hour closed-end format procedural wasn't on TV. It was mostly serialized shows and sitcoms. When I turned around and did Gene Simmons, they weren't doing celebrity reality-type sitcoms. Right. So for me, when I came back finally with Walker, I mean with the Hatfields and McCoys, it was no one had really done a big event, closed-end storytelling. Right. So I'm always trying to find something that is different. For me, there's so much competition now. I think there's two things. One is, it's what you said, in the reality world, you need to sell, you need to partner up with people. Right now, the biggest challenge I have is everybody comes in and says, I want to be your partner. I want a 50-50 deal. I want to be executive producer. And they've done nothing. Right. Uh, they got an idea. They got an opinion. Right. And they all think they, I got to be, they can't be a producer. No, I can be executive. What qualifies you for that? For me, I've always found I'd rather be involved with really good people who can take me on a journey and give me a learning curve. So if I'm 30 years old, I'd want to align myself with as many successful people as I can, build a relationship for being a dependable producer, writer, or or just basically a supplier, mm-hmm. say, I can make this happen. And then go under the umbrella of wonderful people like you get a Tom Beers and Brent Montgomery and Polygian and other people in the different areas and let them help you. Let them teach you. Don't be worried about, I got to make all the money on the first one. I need to have all the credit. I need to have all the power because it's not really what it's cracked up to because there's a lot of pressure that comes and you're easy to become the scapegoat or the fall guy. Right. Because guys a little smarter than you are going to say, well, okay, you wanted it. Here it is. And when it doesn't work now, all of a sudden you're blemished. So my feeling is come up with ideas, keep coming up with these ideas and align yourself with successful people. Learn, diversify your slate with other production companies and people you can learn from. And build the relationships with, yeah. the, with the young network executives. Find a way in. I found it through softball. I found it. Uh, find a way in to build these relationships so that you can build a coterie of network and production executives so you have a shorthand. Right. When things come up, it doesn't require a formal pitch, but they're going to want to go out and help you, and you're going to want to help them. All right, last question. If you hadn't done anything in entertainment, what would Leslie Greif have become professionally? What would you be doing right now? I would... Stumped him. You stumped me. Stumped him. You've never thought about this, have you? I've never thought... I was always so committed to wanting to be in entertainment my whole life. Maybe I... Well, that's entertainment, too. I would have come back. Um, You know, it's funny. I've asked myself that. I think I would have been some kind of a business entrepreneur. I would have found a chain of restaurants. I would have found a clothing <laughs> chain. I would have found something that would have taken me around the world. Cause the one thing that I'm very blessed on, 
I live around the world. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a road dog. I've traveled. I live. I vacation around the world. And I love that. So I would have found some kind of a business that would have enabled me to not be in an office. Well, they have you know, celebrities everywhere around the world. You could have started softball leagues in any country there you go. with there all their biggest stars. I could have been the king of softball. <laughs> I could have been the king of softball. That's a great. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very Appreciate much. It. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Thank you.